0: Is the World on Fire? Hi everyone, you're listening to Is the World on Fire? A podcast created by students and alumni at the Croc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. I'm your host, Taya Clement, and today we are talking with Roshan Paul, co-founder of the Imani Institute and new director of leadership practice at IREX. Roshan is also the Kroc School's first social innovator in residence at its latest initiative, the Spark Institute. Tune in as we talk about social innovation, leadership, and the synergies we need to tackle some of today's hottest fires. Hi everyone, I'm sitting here today with Roshan Paul, who is excitingly one of our newest friends of Kroc in terms of the new Spark Institute that we just started. He's our social innovator in residence, but beyond that, he has a wealth of experience and is one of the co-founders of the Imani Institute and is starting a brand new role as director of leadership practice at IREX based in DC. Thank you, Roshan, for being here today.
1: Thank you, Taya. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: Same. Thank you. So we like to start off with a little question. Is the world on fire?
1: Well, if you're on the East Coast this week, it may feel like the world is underwater. But California has been on fire a lot. For in a while now. Um, uh, Europe this summer uh, was on fire and last summer, Australia. So it may seem like there's a lot of fire going on and, and those are just the literal fires. Right. But there's obviously, you know, metaphorical fires. You don't want to sound like a doomsdayist, but of course, there are big issues we're facing like climate change or the decline of democracy and so on. So it can seem like the world is on fire. But I also think that there's uh, another type of fire as well, which is the fire within people to make this world a better place and and put out some of these literal fires as well. So that's what I also think is happening, is that the world is also on fire or people are on fire to do something uh, in this world. So we can put out fires or we can stoke fires, but uh, it depends, I think, you know, uh, depends how you want to look at it.
0: It's not all good. It's not all bad. That's right. Kind of an extension of that. You are a cultivator of a lot of fires, I think personal fires, it sounds like, from your work. But you're working also on, you know, big fires as well. What are the issues that you care most about and that you feel, you know, you're working to put out or to, to light right now?
1: Yeah, I prefer to think of it as like trying to stoke fires mm. within people and particularly the fire of leadership. Uh, I. So my current role, am the lead Director of Leadership Practice at IREX, which is a very large global nonprofit organization that looks to develop leaders at all levels and all around the world. And we think that leadership is going to be central in this century to, to address the problems that we face all around the world, particularly the decline of institutions and uh, you know, we come back, we're coming back to a place where individual leaders are going to play a big role, particularly as a lot of the macro so, you know, forces around us are leading to a decline in trust, in particular in large mm. institutions and things we've taken for granted, like the media, the idea of there being a truth. So in this kind of post-truth media disinformation, uh, decline and tr- trust in institutions. World, well, I think the role for individuals and individual leadership is only going to get more and more important. So that's kind of the fire that I'm looking to stoke in people around the world now.
0: I want to talk a little bit about you. You recently left the Amani Institute, which you spent a good 10 years developing and and you recently joined IREX. Like you just mentioned, you have a huge portfolio. What is the transition from this project you've been working on for 10 years to a brand new role, new initiative. What's that been like for you?
1: It's been a beautiful transition, of course. I think it's been, you know, there's nothing like the joy of building something from nothing and watching it grow and evolve and scale and also, you know, being healthy enough or strong enough to go on without you, you know. So I think that's something that I found to be a wonderful thing to to see happen. I think it was perhaps less painful than I might have expected or that, you know, entrepreneurs are, are often conditioned to think. And I think a lot of that was because my co-founder, Elena, also decided to step down. And so we were able to help each other. Mm-hmm. And talk each other through all of the questions, you know, all of the emotions that we were feeling as we were able to do this. And so I just think you know, I was actually luckier than most entrepreneurs who look to transition because I was able to have that partner in crime to be able to bounce off ideas. And uh, with IREX, I'm, I'm kind of excited about the opportunity to do the work of Amani Institute, but to do it at a, at a bigger scale. Um, that's exciting to me. And uh, to try to see how we can bring these ideas into, you know, big scale leadership work. I think some of the things that I'm hoping to bring are very much uh, a global mindset. So um, we do work all around the world, but very much, you know, with the sense of bringing people to the U.S. on exchange programs. And I think that there's also a lot that we can do uh, around the world. Uh, not just in the U.S. So what we do in the U.S. is amazing, but I think there's like a much bigger set of opportunities to do things all around the world as well. And that's what I'd like to bring. So that's that global mindset. Um, hopefully I can also bring some new ideas, some new ways of doing things, some new issue areas for us to uh, to address. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm just getting my feet wet still. a so, uh, new
0: arenas, yeah. Yes,
1: exactly. Um, but let's, so let's see.
0: You're originally from India, correct? That's right. So- you have lived this global mindset almost to cultivate it. And I'm not asking for a life story, but what's been your journey from kind of you know a budding social entrepreneur, you're interested in making an impact, you're in undergraduate in the United States. What were the steps that took you to get here?
1: Well, I came to college in the, in the US, primarily because I was a misfit in the Indian education system. And uh, like most foreign students in America, I was looking at jobs in consulting, investment banking and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but my final year of college, my senior year was the year of 9-11, uh, which was followed by you know violent riots in India and a terrorist attacks in India, followed by the US starting to go to war in Afghanistan and, uh, and Iraq. And all of this as I was graduating from college. And it just seemed to me that the world actually was on fire uh, in 2002, 2000, yeah, 2001. Yeah. One, 2002, when I was graduating college. And I felt what good would I do uh, going to work in a consulting firm or an investment bank when there were bigger problems to address out there? And so that's what got me started on working in social impact. And I started working in social entrepreneurship back in my home country of India. And um, yeah, it just it kind of built uh, from, from there. So I spent 10 years working on social entrepreneurship. And then the people who thought I was nuts for making that choice uh, <laughs> back when I was 22 were now calling me up and saying, give me career advice. How do I also want to do something that, you know, provides meaning? That's
0: beautiful. Yeah,
1: it was great. And I felt that I had some of the elements of an answer to that question. And that's what led to the, the founding of Amani Institute was to see how I had the the feeling that more and more people wanted to do this kind of work, but didn't quite know how. And I'd also learned that university master's programs were very good for some things, but not very good at doing other things. And, uh, you know, could we complement what people were studying with a more practical field-based kind of uh, education as well? And that's what led to the founding of Amani Institute, uh, which I then worked at for 10 years.
0: But you scaled up Amani relatively quickly when going from starting in Kenya and then to three Main offices, mm-hmm. correct. What challenges did you face in trying to scale up? You've seen the arena of social impact change as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how has that aided or abetted that scale up?
1: Yeah. Um well, on the one hand, you know, I think we we scaled well in that we rode certain waves of change, like so we rode a wave of dissatisfaction with higher ed in the early, you know, 2010s, and then the second half of the last decade around um the wave of like the rise of purpose as a driving force in how people made career choices. So I think we, well, that's one thing that helped us to scale. I think another thing was around the idea of seeing that you could do leadership development work outside of the West. So in emerging markets, as like not just being where people went to help others, but actually where people went to learn and mm-hmm. study and actually transform themselves and bring ideas back to other other parts of the world, uh, whether that was global South to global South or global South to global North, but actually seeing the global south is actually the source of inspiration and learning and teaching for everyone i think that was a unique concept at the time we used to talk about flipping the map uh, to put the I've global south that. on top and the global north at the bottom and and change how that uh, how that works that comes from a tv show called the west wing that is where i first saw it <laughs> um, but we actually like we did our institutional map of our offices in an upside down oh, really? uh, okay. world map and so i think that was a unique concept but in other ways, I don't think we scaled up very well or very fast at all. I think we, we decided to be a social business and uh, that was good from a sustainability standpoint, but it wasn't good from a rapid growth standpoint because we didn't have funding or investment. And so we had to build it all from scratch and you know, do it block by block as opposed to having funding and being able to, to do a lot at once. So in some ways, I think we didn't scale uh, enough and, and mm. there's a lot more that we could do as well.
0: So you might have done it a little differently going back or...
1: I don't know if I, I did it the best way that I knew how uh, at the time. I think, um, you know, there are questions you ask, like, should I have done it as a for-profit instead of a non-profit? Or mm-hmm. should we have been set up an off fundraising office in the US and like looked for more funding? You know, those are questions that like hindsight is is twenty twenty, 20 yeah. as they say, but there are downsides to any of those choices too. So yeah,
0: yeah. And I guess you doing it, you know, you being one of the first To do it, it means that others can learn from what worked, what didn't work and continue to do that. I kind of want to ask if you think there are any drawbacks to the professionalization of social impact and entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, I think um, everything must be put in context and you have got to, ideally you've got to learn in context, which is why. When we were deciding to start Amani Institute, we did not start in New York City or London or Amsterdam or places like that because we felt that we have to people have to learn these skills in context of applying them. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone should come only to Africa and uh, because that's not the same context as Southeast Asia or Latin America. But I do think that if you can understand the deeper principles behind something... You can then apply it in context or learn, and knowing, even just knowing that the context should change, will change, and should change is a powerful idea or source of wisdom. And then when you go somewhere else and knowing that you've got to adapt it, um, I do think that there are deeper principles or larger principles that are fairly applicable everywhere. Mm -hmm. Greater professionalization, I don't think, stymies innovation at all. In fact, it might actually make it easier because you have more support structures, you have a greater organized resources to draw upon, um, and so on. So I think it's only a good thing, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, with everything, there are, li- there's light and shadow. And so, you know, you can look at what the shadows are and try to, to overcome them.
0: I've heard you talk a little bit about communities of practice and how, you know, for anyone who's trying to get into impact, you know, these communities are sometimes the most important sources of support and ideas and just kind of solidarity. Mm-hmm. So I imagine to that to, to that point that the professionalizations helped with creating those hubs.
1: Absolutely. It, it helps with creating that. It helps with encouraging more people to come into it, right? Like I think that we, we've got a lot of fires to put out and we need all hands on deck, sorry, not to mix my metaphors too much, but uh, <laughs> we need all firefighters uh, on hand people need to get paid. They need to be able to have faster learning curves and, and learning pathways. And so increased professionalization when it comes to better organization structures, uh, better sources of uh, income, uh, more like a greater bank of resources and knowledge to draw upon, as opposed to everyone reinventing the wheel every time. I think these right. are good things that encourage people to think that, hey, I can play a role here. There's something for me to do. I can contribute. You know, I don't have to go entirely in- off the deep end by myself
0: you said that there's some things that are adaptable really in any context. For you, what have you seen those to be seeing that you've worked in all of these different countries?
1: Yeah, I think one aspect is the process of innovation, right? To creativity. There are frameworks, there are tools that help you to be a better problem solver. And uh, you can apply these tools in every context. And some of the elements of these tools is understanding deeply what the problem is. And that is going to vary, you know, from context to context. But the tools of understanding you know, Mm -hmm. are the same, right? Understanding that you have to test out an idea at first before committing wholeheartedly to it because once you put something out in the world, the world is going to give you feedback and that may not be exactly how you've envisioned it. So knowing that you have to prototype is an important thing that's applicable in every context, right? Knowing that impact means different things in different places, but there are also uh, standards that we can apply to impact just just because there is a professional field of impact uh, evaluation. And then knowing that you can apply these in different places, that stays the same uh, regardless of where you are. And that's just innovation, but you can apply the same things to communication skills, interpersonal communication. Mm-hmm. Human beings are communicate differently across cultures. Some, some places you may kiss each other on the cheek to say hi. In other places you may uh, fold your hands to say hello. In some, cases, some places you may shake hands. But or in all of those cases, you're establishing a bond. You're establishing connection, recognizing the other person. This is always a greeting. Is always important everywhere you are, right? So that's a deeper context of interpersonal communication. Knowing that you must greet uh, someone when you see them, you know. So I think that there are these kinds of principles. Knowing that human beings are primarily emotion-driven creatures Mm. and not rational-driven creatures, and that doesn't matter whether you're in, in a deeply rural area or in a concrete jungle. We're still creatures of emotion, and so knowing that you you can. You have to speak to that part of a human being is as important as anything else.
0: For those of you who do not know, Roshan Paul is one of the co-authors of a wonderful book that just came out in 2021.
1: Called The New Reason to Work.
0: Yes. And he talks about in this book, many different topics, but one of which is the way that the social impact space has evolved. The future is is bright. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of places to go. So what are the gaps right now that you think are needing attention or the trends that you're seeing in this social impact space?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, since I started working in social impact, you know, I think uh, what I've seen is that the world and and a lot of the academic literature on this bears this out, that the world is better on on many, many fronts, right? So uh, healthcare is a lot better. I mean, recent pandemic notwithstanding, <laughs> uh, but even that, you know, coming up with vaccines in record time and, and saving, you know, millions and millions of lives is a pretty remarkable achievement. But in general, we're living longer, we're living healthier, we have better nutrition, we understand food better and all of that. So healthcare is better. Education is is a lot better around the world. Prosperity is higher than it was when I started you know, working. Um, we've made progress. Humanity has made progress on a number of different fronts, and on most fronts, actually. There's been a few fronts where we've not made progress or even... Backslid, and I think mm. this gets to the gaps that you 're talking about. Climate change is one of them um, we 're moving towards environmental collapse that 's not a good thing. Inequality is another one we 're seeing greater and greater disparities between the rich and the poor and uh, a third one is i would say the decline of democracy. I think a lot of you know those of us who work in peace building or in civil society in any way rely on a dem- on democratic institutions in order to be able to create a professionalized civil society. But with democracy Absolutely. itself in decline, I think you know our profession is going to be evolving in a lot of different ways. And, and some of that isn't clear yet, but, uh, but I think that's one that really, I think, worries me. One of the things that strikes me in the U.S., so I'll just speak about a U.S. context, but this is, ha- as an outsider looking into the U.S., as I'm not American, but I think that this happens in a lot of different countries. Is you've got two parties that fundamentally have different truths? It's not that they disagree on something. It's that they actually like believe fundamentally different things. It's like one believes the sky is yellow and the other believes the sky is green. Mm-hmm. um you know, and like how do you actually build long term build a society where like people's ideas of the of what is true and what is false are dramatically divergent, right so I think this is something that, like, it's, it's beyond a decline in trust. It's like a decline in the idea of reality. That's a huge structural problem that I don't know how democracy survives. But that's being very doomsday. Uh,
0: right. But I also think, you know, as the peace field is also growing mm-hmm. and here at Kroc, the Kroc School, we talk, a lot of our students are in social innovation or in the peace building masters and they're in the same classes and we're talking to each other. And one thing that comes up with is, you know, how are we assisting one another? And like, are these two separate things? I mean, do you see ways of like peace building as a field or certain skills within peace building that have that will be useful to this respect?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think in a world where we have less and less democracy, peacebuilders will be highly sought after and employable. Um, even sad, in that social impact sad space. Sad to say, um, almost. But, um, but yes, I think, um, you know, of course, there are, there are skills in, that we use in peacebuilding, whether it's empathy, whether it's, you know, a sense of uh, knowing how to communicate uh, better with people and speak to people's even unsaid or unexpressed needs as opposed to, you know, what they say they want. I think these are all things that, you know, we can learn how to to do and look at macro, macro stability structures and so on that I think peacebuilding is uniquely positioned uh, to do. I also think there's a strong connection between peace and prosperity, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And so there are things that entrepreneurs do well in terms of, you know, uh, creating a better um, society with their creativity, their tenacity, their... Determination to scale all walls and and to make sure that something that works in one place can work in other places as well. And I think there's a lot that peace builders can can learn about, learn from that as well. So I, agree. I do think like, and in, there's a larger sense in which it's all connected, right? Like these things are not actually, there's, there doesn't have to be a difference in a way between peace and prosperity like these they go hand in hand that's why we often use those two words together we're looking in for tandem, peace and yeah. prosperity right one almost cannot do without the other so it's kind of yin and yang uh, in a way and so why seek to split them apart
0: yeah something i'm curious about that you may have seen in your work is how within both the peace building but social impact field and space as well there is a lot of competition for limited resources i mean funding being the most easy one to recognize how are you able to cultivate like an ethos of collaboration where you're not seeing someone who's doing similar work to you as your competitor, where you have to beat them out, but that you see them as something that you can work with or how how has that been working for you?
1: I think a lot of it is mindset oriented and personality oriented as well. All the issues we're talking about are connected. And so the idea of competing With people, especially in the social impact space seems a bit silly in some extent, but I think there's real incentive structures on the fund, funding side that actually put people in competition. And, you know, if you think about it, social impact work, particularly nonprofit social impact work is being funded by philanthropic organizations. Philanthropic organizations are set up by people who made a lot of money typically in the business world. And the business world works in one way, which is competitive competition uh, and coming out on top and um, ha- harvesting the financial value that, that comes from that. Uh, and then you know, they then start philanthropies, but they only know one way of doing things, which is that world. And so that's what they set up in terms of funding so I think that's where this whole competition idea comes from a little bit, is the funding structures disincentivize collaboration as yeah. opposed to the traditional sort of empire building approach to organization growth. That said, there are, of course, you know, m- many professional foundations that have evolved beyond their, their founders who are now trying to incentivize collaboration, encourage it. There are also some trends in philanthropy that I think are the opposite of that and aren't great as well. You know, this whole idea of big bet philanthropy, where you give a huge amount of resources to one organization, and that just then kills off a lot of other ones. And I think Mm -hmm. it's unintended consequences that, you know, people aren't like who are doing them. And they're doing it for a good reason. But then I don't think they're thinking through what the downstream impacts of that. Are. And so rather than fostering collaboration, it's kind of actually picking one winner and saying, you know, everyone else is uh, is a loser, in a sense. And that seems like a, an unfortunate way to go about it.
0: Peter Singh has a, a quote that today's problems are yesterday's solutions. And you kind of just reminded me of that. When you're educating like, new leaders and entrepreneurs, how are you preparing them for that? Because you will have consequences of your actions
1: I think that there's a certain sense of awareness you should have about systemic impacts and, and unintended consequences and know that, that that is likely. In fact, it may even be inevitable, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go ahead anyway, right? Like I think all of human human progress is solving a pro- like Peter Sangi said, solving a problem and then realizing that that solution has its own set of problems as well, right? So I think the idea is like, Just because we have obesity as an issue now doesn't mean we shouldn't have tried to solve for starvation. Right. (laughs) Um, Right. So people are dying of hunger and we solve for that. And then now we have solved for it so well that people are dying of, you know, eating too much. So like, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't save the people from starvation. Right. Another great example is in and very topical with climate change is within energy. So we initially for energy, we started by burning Forests. We started cutting kind up of forests and burning wood, right? We realized that was a bad thing. So then we started harvesting oil from whales. Uh, and whale mm-hmm. oil became the source of energy. And then we realized that wasn't great. And so then we went to kerosene, we realized that wasn't great. And so then we went to petroleum and fossil fuels. And now and that like, sparked a the largest like rise in prosperity and, and human progress ever in our history. And now we're seeing the the impact of that. And that isn't great. So now we're looking at solar and wind technologies. And uh you'll we'll soon realize what the problems with that is, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying to get out of fossil fuels either. So I think like, yes, I agree with Peter Senge, but I also think that we shouldn't let ourselves be paralyzed from that we need to act anyway. And at the end of the day, like we, there's only so much thinking that works. You've got to get out there and, and, and do, do stuff. And like, yeah. you know, there's this great line from a guy who was an innovation at Google, uh, that doing is the best form of thinking. And, and I, I found that to be true at least.
0: So we were talking a little bit about the the collaboration that is possible and that needs to be kind of incentivized in Mm -hmm. some ways. Can you give an example of a collaboration you've seen that's worked really well?
1: Well, firstly, just in principle, like oftentimes funders in particular, but in general, people think that collaboration should happen between people doing the same thing. Right, So let's say it's like two people trying to do solar energy. Why don't they collaborate and, and work together on solar energy? But again, the incentive structures and funding, the incentive structures and organizations don't really support that. So I think collaboration works best when not when you're doing the same thing, but when you're doing complementary things. Right. So one of my favorite examples, and I think it's from Nepal, and it was a while ago, so I don't remember the names of the organizations, but two organizations came together one was providing solar lights and the other one was pro- trying to do edu- like education of for disadvantaged populations and they said well what if we put solar lights on people's houses so kids can study at night you know, and, and that they're able to get their homework done and go to school the next day. So it was a collaboration whereby the solar companies got to access a whole population that they weren't otherwise targeting. And the education organization was able to provide greater access to education uh, to make the children better off. So both sides benefited. We had better energy outcomes on the solar side and we had better education outcomes, uh, you know, and I think that's how collaboration should be. It should be complementary as opposed to forcing people who do similar work to come together like I have had the experience where a funder asked me to like that a condition of the grant would be to collaborate with my one of my biggest competitors <laughs> um and it was like we're not we're, we're, I would say like we're friendly competitors there was not like a, there was a rivalry but it wasn't like vicious or anything like that mm-hmm. it was just we knew we were working on similar working on the same problem in similar ways but like why would we share our curricula or our training methodologies or pedagogies with each other, it just didn't really seem to make sense. But like, if we then partner, we're a talent. We were a training organization. We partnered with a recruiting organization and a government fellowship consulting organization to create a series of conferences around impact careers in India. And I think that was that was very a great example of collaboration because we were all three doing different things and brought different things to the table uh, in terms of collaboration. And that's when it works pretty well. And actually, the Three of us who lead those three organizations are like close friends to this day, three mm. or four years later, because like it was, it worked so, so well to bring complementary skills together as opposed to bringing the exact same skill
0: together. It's more or less like mirroring in, in biology or in nature, like symbiosis and how these different species have to kind of support each other. Exactly. I love those kinds yeah. of metaphors too. Yeah. You mentioned that a while back there weren't that many programs that were in higher education teaching people about social, social impact. Right now, what are employers really looking for? And for someone who's trying to get into that space, maybe for the first time, maybe from a different industry, where do they start? And what are the skills that employers are really seeking right now?
1: I think what employers are looking for hasn't changed that much. It's essentially the people who can get things done with the least amount of resources and time and and with greatest efficiency. And they're looking for people who enjoy doing the work Uh, that they are hiring them to do because that leads to longer term sustainability and less burnout and and all of that and i think that you know a good test is to ask an employer what are the characteristics of their best employee Mm. uh, and also ask an employer what are the characteristics of like their least favorite employee and what you'll get are not a set of technical skills like you know they can use excel really well or they can read a balance sheet very well or they can you know whatever code very well you will end up getting personality based things so they are bring a positive attitude to the workplace they look to solve problems rather than point them out to people they take ownership of the whole organization and not just of their own uh, job description they collaborate well with others they support their team you you get things like these are really like about them as people and not necessarily what their skills are and on the flip side if you ask uh, employees what their least favorite employee is They will tell you, again, things like the the flip side of all, all of these things, right? So again, I think it's like success in the workplace, success with employers is more what your personal traits are and knowing how to bring that and show value in organizations and not even, of course, you need certain functional skills to be able to do the work, you know, but you get that from master's programs or vocational programs or certificates and so on. Anyone can do that. That's not usually what is, uh, leads to success. What leads to success is a set of what, what's often called soft skills, mm-hmm. uh, right? And so there's this great line in management that says you get hired for hard skills, but fired for soft skills. And I think that that's, that's quite true, actually.
0: Super relevant. Yeah. I think in any, any sector mm-hmm. too. Absolutely. Are there any industries that are left out currently that should be factored in to social impact or at least see that as part of their mission?
1: Sure. Um, I think a lot of traditional businesses would say that's not what they do. They're They're in business to make a profit. Their legal obligation is to their shareholders to give them the highest possible returns. And they shouldn't be worried about downstream impact of their work. And that's a traditional business view of things. I do think that's changing. Investors are putting pressure on companies to realize that if they're going to have long-term returns over time, they do need to think about the environment in which they're operating. They do need to think about how they treat their employees um, and they do need to take a lot of these other aspects into account. So Sure, there's traditional business that isn't thinking about social impact, but they're increasingly going to be forced to. As something like sustainability, for instance, which was kind of seen as this marginal thing, is going to become as cross-cutting as like the way we look at technology or diversity mm-hmm. today in big companies. We're also going to be looking at sustainability as just something that has to be baked in to everything that um, that they do, because otherwise there's going to be costs imposed on them. I saw this fascinating story recently. That said, what is making U.S. police departments actually start to take police brutality most seriously mm-hmm. is not all the activists. It's not all of the media on police violence. It's the insurance companies that are saying we won't insure you if you keep having getting sued
0: oh, fascinating. for police
1: brutality. If you keep getting sued and having to make settlements for police brutality, we're not going to insure you anymore. And so it's money, money money talks. And so police departments, not the really big one, not New York or LA or whatever that have apparently have other their own insurance funds to deal with this, but a lot of small police departments around the country are finding that their insurance premiums are going up if they don't take police brutality seriously. I thought that that was an amazing and fascinating story.
0: It's an amazing story. And it kind of gives me hope to incentivize companies might might not see themselves or their objectives are in that space be like well we do have power like we mm-hmm. we could change the way exactly. that these actors are behaving that conflict is occurring
1: Absolutely and I think you find solutions in unexpected places right I mean you could look at that story and say how depressing that like police departments had to wait until they lost money in order right. to change and all of the like protests and civil society actors didn't actually cause that change that's depressing Or you could look at it and be like what a creative solution you know yeah. what? A different way of thinking about this, and look who actually came up with an intro with a way that was also in their own self-interest because mm-hmm. they, the insurance companies, didn't want to stop paying out these settlements. And I think innovation and social innovation is all about looking for solutions in unexpected places and bringing that to bear. And I think we can, you know, while we can introspect about ineffectiveness of civil society on this issue, we can also celebrate that, like, hey, there are solutions out there, and I think. You know, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Right? And for
0: those activists listening, I mean, I'm sure the, the work that they're doing is still creating a culture of, of need and demand for a change.
1: In a, in, this, in a hypothetical police like department in a small town, when they know they have to change, well, they're going to go to the civil society activists or the training organizations and say, all right, that's give true. us our... Give us the training. Now we're open to the training, right? But like when, when they were being the door, knocking on the door and saying, you need this training, they were like, no, go away. But yeah. now they say, okay, we need the training. That's because the insurance company is putting pressure on them.
0: At a different phase in the cycle of change. Right. that yeah. Right.
1: So they talk but about complementary that. collaborations. Yeah. Can police training organizations collaborate with insurance companies to improve the state of policing in America? That's an like, unexpected collaboration, but possibly a, a good one. A
0: good one. We've talked about a lot of different topics here. You said a lot of what is important in this space now today is your personality and the traits that you bring in, those soft skills that help you collaborate, help you build teams and lead. What was your upbringing like that kind of cultivated this this hunger or this natural leaning towards that? Can you share anything?
1: Uh, Maybe you need to ask my therapist. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I think... um, you know, I had a relatively unusual upbringing for an Indian because my parents were quite unusual themselves. So my, my dad started a consulting management consulting firm in a socialist country and everyone thought he was crazy. And my mom has been everything from a stockbroker to a marriage counselor wow. um, and a lot of things in between. And they, you know, said, you know, as long as you are able to be happy and take care of yourself, we don't care what you do. You know, I kind of those words to heart and went and created a very different kind of career. Went and ran with it. <laughs> yeah, just ran with it. And at times, I think they've thought to themselves, hmm, "Maybe that wasn't." I don't know why you're doing that. Um, but so far, it's it's worked out okay. And I think that um, you know, when I was growing up, like I think we were just instilled to ask questions. My dad, in particular, was very sort of someone who didn't accept the status quo and asked a lot of questions uh, and was an entrepreneur and created new things. And I think. You know, we were just brought up that way and um, that helped me to also be something uh, similar. So I would say I would give a lot of the the credit or blame if, uh, to my parents uh, for that. But, you know, beyond that, I think, you know, I grew up playing sport and, and I think that like formed a lot of things I learned about leadership and things I learned about life lessons, let's say. And then I came to the U.S. for undergrad and was exposed to, a, you know, this wonderful intellectual life that kind of only... I think, or happens best in, in the U.S. Um, and I think putting all of that together, that's kind of soup created, um, whatever you emerged. I do. Exactly, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> do you have a, a role model today?
1: It's a really good question. And I think you may not even know how good a question it is because here's the thing with role models or the, the, the reason we ask about role models, it's not about who the role model is, it's about what it tells you about the person. Because like our role models are who we see ourselves as at our best, Mm. right? So it's all projection, right? So let's say I say Nelson Mandela is my role model. I don't know Mandela. I've never met Mandela. Like I am projecting onto Mandela certain qualities that I think he embodies, but it's really what I see as who I want to be at my best. There is an exercise that we do at Amani Institute uh, where we, we use the role model question to as a way to hack someone's brain to understand what their own like greatest strengths are and their, their greatest like light. But I'll answer your question, which is to say that I've had many role models in my life. One today, or like the latest, shall we say, is um a guy called Lawrence Anthony, who was a South African conservationist. And he uh, set up a sanctuary for a herd of elephants in a private game reserve in South Africa. There's a book called The Elephant Whisperer that tells the story, which I recommend to Mm -hmm. to anyone. It's a great change-making book, but it's also a beautiful book about elephants and Africa and wildlife. And then the war with Iraq happened and the US was bombing Baghdad. And he realized, or he knew that the Baghdad Zoo, like all those animals, were going to get killed, or going to get either in bombs, or going to get eaten by uh, by people. And so he persuaded the U.S. military to let him go to Baghdad and uh, evacuate uh, all these animals. And then once they did that, they realized there were like lots and lots of animals in Baghdad and I- Iraq that were being held in captivity, and like as individual possessions of, of rich people. And all these animals were also now starving and. Traumatized and mm-hmm. stuff. So then they went around rescuing animals across like all of the palaces and and other dens in in Iraq. And then he then somehow got involved. Uh, talking about peacebuilding, he wanted to to save gorillas in Uganda. And then ended up finding himself negotiating directly with the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda. Wow! To save the gorillas, and that became a conduit between like governments and the LRA. And his interest was to save gorillas, right? But, um, but he did all of that. So he's had this like incredible life. Anyway, the really fascinating thing is like they had built, he had built this massive game park in South Africa and um, this herd of elephants that he had rescued and rehabilitated were about a day's walk away when he died. A day's walk away, they knew it and they walked overnight and showed up at his house in time for his funeral the next day. Which I just think is like it gives me chills just thinking about like what is that connection, uh, that that enables that. Um, and I, so anyway, he's kind of a role model. Uh, and strive and
0: for that connection.
1: I would love to strive yeah. for that connection with animals. <laughs> yeah, that's like my my favorite mm-hmm. thing. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, if you were to analyze that story, you can probably just from the way I told it, like understand or extract things that are very important. To me, or um, so by talking to me about my role model, you are actually you're learning more about me than actually the role model.
0: This is great for our listeners just to even yeah. reflect on, like, why, why do I have this role model, exactly. and what does that say about what I want? And
1: exactly. No, what does that say about who I who am? Who I
0: am, right? Right. That's so that's a way I've never thought about it. So I appreciate mm-hmm. that reframing. I yeah. guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, this has been really interesting, and such a pleasure to talk to you and hear stories. Um, I hope we can talk more and you know, you'll be here at the Croc School a few times throughout the year and yes. I know next year. So um, look forward to seeing more of you.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me and I look forward to continuing to talk.
0: All right. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Russian Paul. Before you go, we want to hear from you. Share your questions, stories or ideas on the fires you see in today's world. Contact us on Instagram at Croc School or via email at is the world on fire at gmail.com and let us know what is your fire?